decided for a few weeks to step out of kind of just learning about the Sermon on the Mount and talk about how are we actually practicing the Sermon on the Mount? How are we actually getting to a place where these aren't just lessons that we're cognitively understanding and taking in and learning a few new things, but how are these things that we, are we actually practicing and living this stuff out? And so we've been talking about this idea of a rule of life. And when we talk about a rule of life, we're kind of talking about what are the practices that become the trellis that train us to walk in the ways of Jesus. And so we talked about the four invitations of Jesus, which are come and see, follow me, I will make, and go and make. And the idea that we wanna build our life around the invitations of Jesus. If we wanna be followers in the way of Jesus, then we actually have to participate in that way and walk in that way. Uh, We spent a week talking about kind of the four areas around the top. The first is consistent rest. And so we talked about like the journey in our life of actually taking a Sabbath. Matt was here and he talked about daily and weekly rhythms of rest and are we slowing down? Are we receiving the limitations that we have in our life? Are we worshiping and are we quieting ourselves before the Lord or is this life and this season so hurried and so quick that we're just completely missing Jesus in every area of our life? We talked about relational presence and the idea of actually being with each other in this season. Uh, Advent season is a time where it's easy to be present but not to really be with each other. And so we can be in the same room but we're all on our phones and we're all doing all kinds of different things. And so we talked about what would happen if we became relationally present to the people around us. And and with each of these kind of quadrants, we we talked about two check-ins that we want you to take each week as you start. And so with consistent rest, we want you to just start in. Maybe you take this on a Monday morning and just say, all right, I'm working on my rule of life this week. And on Monday morning, I'm going to start with consistent rest. And I'm going to say this week, what's my daily rhythm of rest? And what's my weekly rhythm of rest? Under relational presence, we talked about where, who do I need to listen to this week? Who do I need to just be with and just be present to? Who do I need to have a no agenda meeting with and just spend an hour with them and just say, how are you doing and how can I pray with you? And then who do I need to share something with? Who do I need to encourage? Who do I need to give generously to? Who do I need to just be present with? And now today we're gonna talk about missional imagination. And we're gonna talk, to, talk about this journey of resisting and risking. Uh, And these are two things that if I had to go around this chart and say, what are the two most challenging things? I think these are the two most challenging things for us. Justin Early said this. He said, we, for our own sake, have attempted to become limitless. While Jesus, and, and what happened because of that is the world was ruined. While Jesus, for our own sake, made himself limited and the world was saved. This idea of embracing our limitations This idea of looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, your way above my way, and trusting that Jesus is a good master that's worth serving, and so that we can trust him with every area of our life. And it's one thing for us to say, I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to take some little time to rest today. It's one thing to say, I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to have coffee with somebody. But when we start talking about risk, it gets more difficult. When we start talking about this idea of I'm gonna resist everything that's happening in the culture around me and I'm gonna be in the world but not of the world, I'm gonna resist some of the things that the culture is throwing at me and I'm gonna trust in Jesus' way rather than the world's way or than the American way, this is where it gets hard. Because the rest of these things, I think we can check the boxes pretty simply. 
But when it gets down here to missional imagination, it becomes tougher because the challenge here is submission. And submission is always hard. We don't wanna do that. And we've gotta ask ourselves the tough, tough questions as we look at this and as we look at our individual lives and also as we look at the life of our church, we've gotta ask the question, do we actually have practices that form us in the ways of Jesus? Or do we just show up at church on Sunday and that's our practice? Maybe we go to a Bible study once a week and that's our practice. Maybe we open the Bible one or two times a week or we read a daily devotional or those kinds of things. What are the real practices that actually get us to the heart of becoming like Jesus, that train us and teach us to walk in his ways? Uh, and, and sometimes what we do is we categorize our spiritual life. And we kind of say, well, I can do this, but I'm not going to do this. Can we put that chart back up there? Uh, sometimes what we do is we say, well, I'm going to rest, but I'm not going to do any of these other things because rest feels good and I'm good with that. Or I'm going to read my Bible this week, but I'm not about worshiping. I'm not going to worship this week. Or I'm going to um, I, I, I'm gonna do some discipleship stuff. I'm going to do some study stuff, but do not ask me to go reach my neighbor or do any kind of evangelism. And what we've done is we've compartmentalized our faith and said, it's okay for me to do some of these things and not all of these things, but I wonder if Jesus was walking with us, if we were his disciples. Let's just imagine we split into groups of 12 and Jesus came back and each of us walked with him and spent time with him for a day, for a week, for a month. I wonder if Jesus would look at our lives and he would say, wait a minute, I think we need to grow in some of these specific areas. Um, we have fragmented lives where we don't integrate with consistent rhythms, and so we become anemic in specific areas and fat in other areas. We become anemic in specific ways and fat in the other way. It's like the guy who is at the gym who always skips leg day, right? We got a picture of that. There he is. <laughs> this is what I wonder if the church looks like this sometimes. I wonder if we are so weighted and swole and strong and lifted up in, in ways of worship and gathering on Sunday, but when we talk about discipleship and mission, we've got these tiny little legs that can't hold the strength that we have up here. And so we've built up certain strengths that are good and wonderful. The, the, the Church of America is great at gathering. We're great at worshiping together. We're great at singing songs together. Actually, the capacity that we have right now to study the Bible is limitless. It's so incredible. We have these little devices where we can just type in any question we have about the Bible and we can find article after article after article about them and we can read and study and it's all in our hands. I remember when you had to have like encyclopedias to find out information. Remember when you had to go to the library to find stuff? Our library is in our hands right now, like all of this stuff is available to us, but I wonder sometimes if we look at our life and if we actually evaluated the church, if this is what the church would look like. We are strong on worship and light on mission. And I want you to know that like community and mission are not at odds against each other. They're not fighting against each other. Worship and discipleship are not at odds with one another. Jesus is teaching us to have an integrated life. So, so I wanna ask you to think about something. If you had to grade your life, I know this is hard, and, and there are no grades in heaven, all right? Are you with me? But if you had to evaluate your life around these four categories, worship, community, mission, and discipleship, which would you say I'm doing great at, and which would you say is the hardest for you? Think about it for a second. Worship, community, 
mission and discipleship, if you had to rate your life and say, this is the one thing that I'm doing well on, this is the thing that I need to work on, what would you say? My guess, how many of you would say worship is last on, out of your four things? Nobody. How many of you would say community is last on your four things? You got, you got to raise your hand if it really is. It's okay. You're, there's no, no judgment. A couple of you, that's good. How many of you would say discipleship is last on your four? A lot more hands there. How many of you would say mission is the hardest thing for you? A lot of hands. So a lot of hands around mission and discipleship and not as many around worship and community. And so what we've done in, in, is we've kind of skipped leg day. Right? We've skipped the day that actually builds up the strength for us in, in these specific things. And, 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 and like, if you think about a football team, so my football team lost yesterday, they were terrible, uh, and, and they've been bad at the same thing all year. There's been one thing that they haven't been able to do, and it stopped the run, right? And so when you think about a team, like when you've got a team and you're gathering your team together, you've gotta work on your weakness, Right, you've gotta say, if we're gonna actually succeed, if we're gonna actually be successful, we have to do the thing and work on the thing that isn't natural to us, that is harder for us, that is more difficult to us, that is more challenging to us, and we've gotta get our reps in in that area. Because you can't just keep working on the thing that's your strength over and over again and expect to get better. You have to balance it out. So, so usually when we struggle with mission, it revolves around three simple things. The first is its relationships. The reason we struggle with mission is because we're not in relationship with anybody outside of the church. And so we've created holy huddles and we've created these areas where we're doing so great at spending time with believers and Christians, but we don't ever reach out beyond that circle and beyond that cycle. And so we gather together week after week with the same group of people in the same places, eating the same meals, talking about the same things when we don't reach out and connect with others. When was the last time someone who doesn't believe in Jesus sat at your table? If that is not a consistent rhythm for you, either having them in your home at your table or going out to dinner with people who don't know Jesus, then we've gotta evaluate that and say, why are we anemic in these areas? Why are we not reaching the world? Why are we not hanging out with him? I've said this over and over again, but, but everybody always says it's amazing that Jesus spent all his time with sinners. What's more amazing to me is that the sinners wanted to spend their time with Jesus. They wanted to be around Jesus. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people that were cheating, the people that were stealing, they saw something in Jesus that said, I want what he has and I wanna be around him and I wanna be a part of his life. I think Christians should throw the best parties in our community. I think we should, because we've got more joy and good news and hope that the whole world needs to proclaim. Sometimes we just don't get around it. The second thing is risk. We, we, we have a really hard time taking risk. We have a really hard time stepping out and risking anything. The Bible talks about risk through the word faith, right? It's faith. Faith is this idea that I'm going to risk something because I believe what I'm going to gain is better. So I don't know what's in this, but I'm gonna invest in this, believing that there's a return on this when I don't know that what the return will be. But I'm gonna keep investing in this even when it's hard and even when it's difficult. And oftentimes, I think one of the challenges of being in a country like America where we can gather every week freely, where we can worship at our leisure, where we can do whatever that we want, is there's no risk in our relationship with Jesus. 
Every time I go on a missions trip somewhere in another country, especially in closed countries in the Muslim world, when I go to these places where I see the risk that it actually requires for believers to walk in their faith, I always think, man, we're so anemic. Like We think the biggest risk for us is eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Man, I ate some Christian chicken this week, right? Like that's, I uh, did it. I, I don't, we, we just don't step out in faith and risk. And so when it's easy for us, there's this challenge of risk. The third thing is resistance. And that's asking the question, does my life look any different than the culture around me? The, the, the numbers are pretty staggering when you dive into them at, at, at how the numbers in the church mark the same numbers in the world for so many different things. You look at, at abuse, you look at alcoholism, you look at drug abuse, you look at all of these different things, uh, you look at divorce. All of these numbers are almost exactly the same in the church as they are in the world. And one of the signs of health is that our numbers start to look different, is that our lives start to look different than the culture around us, and we're blessed in a certain specific way. So I've got this really simple, it's super, this is super cheesy. Are you guys all right if we go cheesy today? If we go like, pretend like you're in sixth grade, some of you are, and you'll love this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is so, we, somebody taught me this a long, long time ago, and it's just a really simple method for me to think about mission in my life. And so this could be a part of your rule of life. This could be a part of your grid. And, and, and it's just one of those acrostics, which I know everybody loves it when the pastor does these. Uh, and it just is the word bless, all right? I know this is super cheesy. But B is just begin with prayer. Like start our week with prayer. Start the week praying and saying, all right, Jesus, I'm available, I'm present. I want to live on mission this week. I want to have eyes to see what's happening in the world around me. And so if you bring anybody in my path that I'm supposed to love, serve, bless, or care for, I'm gonna have eyes open for it because I'm praying every day for that to happen. So then when the moment happens and you come across somebody, it's as if Jesus shines a light on it and says, right now. The problem is we don't begin with prayer, and so we're not walking in an awareness of his presence. We're not walking in awareness of his power. We're not walking in an awareness that Jesus at any moment could move heaven and earth so that something beautiful could happen. Think about this. Every single one of us who carries the gospel, who carries the light of Jesus, every single one of us at any moment has the power to change eternity for somebody. How, how incredible is that? One conversation. One moment of prayer, one blessing, one moment of serving somebody, one moment of cutting your neighbor's grass and sharing a story with them, and suddenly eternity has shifted for that whole family. You wanna get really excited about it, think about how the book of Acts talks about when one person's saved, the entire family's saved. So one moment, right? I'm praying, I'm, I'm available, I'm present. God places somebody in front of me. There's a moment where I have to share my faith, to share my story, to tell them about Jesus. They accept Christ and all of a sudden, their family, their kids and their kids and the kids after them and you see this generational faithfulness that grows out of one moment of obedience. Most of us can look back in our lives and say there was one person, there was one moment, there was one uh, church service, there was one gathering, there was one disciple maker, there was one missionary who entered into my life, and when they entered into my life, everything shifted and everything changed from that moment forward. And not only does it change for that person, but it changes for their family and the family after that. This, the L is for listen. Just gather with people and listen. At, in the church, guys, we've become really good at talking and really bad at listening. And I think the world is actually expecting us 
to come at them guns blazing rather than just listen to their story. Just ask questions. Be compassionately curious. Care for the people around you. When you see somebody hurting, ask them what's going on. Try and meet needs. Try and care for them. But you cannot meet somebody's needs until you listen to their story. And sometimes what we do is we lead with talking. We lead with advice. We lead with all of these different things rather than listening. E is my favorite. You guys have all done well at this this week. It's eat. Right? Eat a meal together. I'm telling you right now, the Bible says that God has prepared a table in the presence of our enemies. And I think the problem is very few of us are willing to sit there. There has been a table prepared for us in the presence of the people around us. And God has invited us to invite people to our table, to invite people to eat with us, to enjoy a meal. There's something about eating a meal together that breaks down barriers. Many of you experienced that live this week, right? Your family was gathered together and your aunt crazy aunt was talking politics and your crazy somebody was talking vaccines. Everybody was about to fight and then the turkey came out and God saved the world, right? There is something about the table that levels the playing field. There's a generosity to it. There's a hospitality to it. There's a kindness to it. One of the things that I, like, someone, I, I, was, I was meeting with another pastor and he was asking me, like, if you could train your church to do one thing that you think would radically change your community, what would it be? And I said, eat meals with people that don't know Jesus every week. Imagine if every single one of us we're entering into the world every single week and we're eating meals with people that didn't know Jesus and meeting people and connecting with them and just sitting at a table with them and listening. The S is for serve. Once you listen, once you eat with people, you hear their needs, you hear what's going on, and then you address it. You try and serve, you try and be generous, you try and care for them. And this isn't, a, uh, this isn't an acquisitional thing, it's not a transactional thing, this is genuine love. I genuinely want to love my neighbor as myself regardless of what decisions or choices they make. My wife and I have some neighbors that we meet with all the time. They, they will never come to church. They have zero interest in ever hearing me preach. I'm, 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 I don't know how excited they are about Jesus right now, but we don't serve them because we're trying to get them to church. We serve them because they're our neighbors and we love them. And so we're present to them. We know their needs. We know what's going on. We invite them into our home. We eat meals with them. We watch lots of football together. There's lots of things that we do where we're gathering and we're serving. And then the last thing is story. When the time comes, tell your story. Tell your story, tell people about how Jesus has transformed your life, how he's changed your life, what he's done in your life. And this doesn't have to be some kind of radical, you know, theological treatise. Like, you, you can just tell your story, right? Like, here's something that's important to me, my faith. Can I talk to you about it? Can I share with you why I, I, I am dealing with this in a specific way? My boss is a jerk, but this is how I'm dealing with it because my faith informs the way I work. Uh, this is going on in my life and my finances, but my faith informs the way I deal with my finances. And this is how I'm trusting Jesus in those areas. We're looking for ways to proclaim the good news over and over and over again. So two questions to begin to ask every single week, especially if you're putting this into practice. And this is really easy to remember. It's cheesy, I know. Are you guys all right with cheesiness? Super cheesy. But it is easy to remember and it's helpful. So two questions to ask weekly are, what are my habits of resistance and what are my habits of risk? Um, 
Resistance is this idea that sometimes what we have to do is we have to give something up in order to gain something. We have to leave something behind so that we can take something away. And if I did an inventory of all of your lives and looked at your calendars and we kind of piled up all the things that were going on in your life, my guess is one of the reasons and one of the excuses why we don't live on mission is because we're so busy. There's so many things going on and we're so connected and busy and, and there's just not room and there's not space for some of these things. And so we wanna, we wanna connect with the world, but we wanna be distinct in the world. Um, Jesus prayed this of his disciples in John 17, verses 14 through 19. He said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent you into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. This is Jesus' prayer for us. It's his prayer for his disciples, but it's also his prayer for us. And here's his prayer. Make them be able to resist the culture around them, but live in a connection with the world around them. There is this challenge of connection and distinction. This is the challenge of every follower of Jesus. We are called to connect to the world, to connect to our neighbors, but we're also called to be distinct and to resist the world around us. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is a reality that there is parts of culture that we need to resist, are you with me? Uh, there's a really great framework here that I think is really helpful that talks about how we're formed in the culture that we live in. All of us are formed by the culture that we live in. It's our cultural identity. And if you think about this kind of formation of culture, it's really interesting to study, and lots has been done about this, but our cultural identities are influenced by so many different factors. They're influenced by our religion, by our ancestry, by our skin color, by our language, by our class, by our education, by our profession, by our skills. Like, think just briefly of, like, how different your life would be if you were born 100 miles south or 100 miles north from where you were. Like, our, if you had been born into a different family, if you had different parents, if your parents were working-class family, what if you were born into a wealthy family? If you are born into a wealthy family, what if you were born into a poor family? If you were born into a white family, what if you were born into a black family? It's like all of these things influence the way we see culture and the way that we identify with the culture around us. And, and, and all of these things define our life. And what Jesus says is our cultural identity is not anywhere as valuable as our kingdom identity, that our kingdom identity is where our life is built. And so regardless of what our cultural identities are, and regardless of how we're formed and shaped by where we're born, who we live, who our parents are, what kind of home we grew up in, what place we lived in, all of those different things. Man, if I were born 100 miles north of where I was, I would be a Michigan fan. That would be terrible, right? That would be my life right now, right? That would be where I would, I would actually be celebrating today because they killed us yesterday. Eric, I see you. Uh, Eric's the only real Michigan fan in our church, so he gets love for putting up with me. Uh, I'm an Ohio boy. Uh, some of this cultural formation and the way that we're shaped by our culture is actually good, and some of it is troubling. So Sarah and I last night were watching um, the instant classic, 
the thing that we all need to watch at Christmas season. We're watching Christmas Vacation. And, and my wife goes way overboard on Christmas movies. I don't know if anybody else, like, I am good. I, she calls me a Scrooge, but I'm not, like, I'm, I'm good with an occasional Christmas movie. Is anybody with me? I cannot do a Christmas movie every night of the week. I cannot do it, right? I, I, there, there are, honestly, let's be real about it, and I know this is going to break some people's hearts. There are maybe four good Christmas movies, maybe four, and you can argue about Die Hard being in there or not, right? You can have that kind of discussion, but there are not that many good Christmas movies to watch, and so 90% of them are like, oh, there's a new Christmas movie on Netflix. You know it's going to be terrible. You know it's awful. Every year, somebody's like, there's a new one, and it's great. And it's awful, right? It's always, it's the same thing. It's contrite, and it's silly, and it's goofy, and Rudolph, and I don't know what happens. It's just not, they're, sorry. I, maybe I am a Scrooge. But we were watching this last night, and we started laughing midway through it, because there's a bunch of scenes where you can tell this movie was, was created in 1989. And you can tell that cell phones were not a part of the life of, what, what's the family's name? The Griswolds. The Griswolds did not have cell phones. You could tell. There's one scene where they had just been to the tree place and they had sap all over their hands and they were in bed reading magazines and every time they turned a page and Sarah was like, look, they're reading magazines in bed. Because we all just get on our phones, right? That would be the reality now is there would be sap on our phones uh, in, in these kinds of things. In, uh, in 1990, a year after this movie was made, around 11 million people had cell phones. That seems like a lot. Until you realize how many people had cell phones by 2020. 2.5 billion of us had cell phones. I, I read the 11 million and I was like, wow, that's a lot higher than I thought it would be in 1989 because I didn't have a cell phone in 1989. Um, but, but think about this. I, I think about this with my kids all the time. I didn't grow up in a world where cell phones were a part of my teen years. Dating, for me, there was no, I never worried about profile pictures. I never worried about Snapchat. I never had to worry about texting somebody. I just talked to humans. That's what I did. Like, if there was a girl I like, I walked up to her and I said words. That was what I did, right? Like, like the kids today, like there's this whole way that they're growing up around technology that is completely different from the way that we grew up. And there's some good things about it, right? There's some really good things that technology brings into our life and cell phone technology and all of these things. There's connections. My kids' scope of connections is so much larger than mine. We moved here from Ohio five or six years ago, five years ago, and my kids are still connected to people in Ohio because of technology and because of phones and because they can play video games together and they can text with each other and all of those kinds of things. When I was a kid, if you moved away, you never saw that person again. You never knew what happened for them for the rest of their life. They could have gotten dysentery on the Oregon Trail. Like, you have no idea what happened to people in your life at that point. You were just gone from them forever. You couldn't check in on Facebook to see what was going on. You just, you had to go to their house to find out if they were there. And you would knock on the door, and if they weren't there, they, you, they were gone forever. That was it. There are so many different ways in which this is shaping and forming us. And, 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 and the challenge for us is to interpret culture through the lens of Scripture and not to interpret Scripture through the lens of culture. 
And so the challenge for us over and over and over again is, is what's our framework and our grid for what do we need to resist and what do we not need to resist? Richard Niebuhr wrote a famous book called Christ and Culture, which is a really, really brilliant book. It's an old book, um, but it talks a lot about this kind of idea, and he gives a really simple framework that I've always used in ministry in my life that's always been helpful. Um, he talks about there are three things that we need to do with culture. We either receive it, we reject it, or we redeem it. Those are the three things. And so there are certain things in culture that are good, and we receive it, and we say, you know what? Our community is celebrating, and that's worth celebrating. It's good, so we're going to celebrate it. Thanksgiving, people gathering at a table together, that's a good tradition. We're going to gather at a table together. We're going to eat a meal together. We're going to be with family. There, there's all kinds of things that we just simply receive because the things that are ingrained in culture are good, and we take it, and we say, that's good. We're going to do that. There's other things that we say, um, we're, gonna re- we're gonna reject it. It's like, this is completely wrong. This is not good for us. This is different than what scripture teaches us. And so there are lots of ways in which our culture lives in a way that we're not allowed to live if we're gonna be dis- distinct people of God. And so we've gotta reject specific things and say, you know what, I can't do that. There's certain media and certain movies that I can't watch. Um, there's certain things that I can't step into, and I've got I've to know what are those things and what are those limits and where are those lines that say, you know what, I, I can't do that. We're, we're constantly training our kids who are all teenagers right now that there are times when you just need to walk away from your friends and say, you know what, I know what you guys are doing right now, and I can't be a part of it. And I love you, and I'm not saying that I don't love you because I'm walking away from this. I'm saying I can't be a part of what you're doing because my faith is informing my life, and my faith tells me I cannot do what you're doing right now. And our kids are growing in the wisdom of how do they do that in love and grace? How do they walk away from the things? But well, we can get into a place where we reject everything in culture, right? Where we just become cynicals and we just become critics of everything. And so we just start rejecting everything outright. And that's when we create these holy huddles and we have no relationship with the outside world because we're afraid of the world rather than living distinct in the world. And the third thing that we do is, is we redeem it. We redeem what is broken. We, we redeem what is misused. There are some things that are good, but they're just misused. I was thinking about this last night, and, and I think I love the way our church does Halloween. Because I don't, there's a lot of pagan things in Halloween that I think are broken and are wrong. Like, there's people that decorate their yards in my neighborhood, and I'm like, that is kind of creepy. Like, I'm not sure I could decorate my yard for Halloween in general, but that way specifically, I'm not sure I could do that. Like there's certain things that I'm just like, I don't know, there's some things about Halloween that kind of creep me out in a little bit. I, I don't know if anybody else is with me. Maybe I'm old school and maybe I'm traditional, but there's certain things that I'm like, I don't know. But I love the fact that on Halloween, all of our neighbors gather in our cul-de-sac. We all come out of our front doors. We set fire pits in our cul-de-sac. We bring chili and we sit there together all night around the fire and we just talk and we all give candy out to the people in the neighborhood. That, that to me is redeeming something that could be used for evil or that could be broken in some kind of way, but we're using it in a way that is honoring to Jesus. We're using it in a way that is beautiful. We do trunk or treat here at the church and it's always one of my favorite events because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who would never enter the doors of this church on a Sunday who will come out in our parking lot and, and hang out with us and drink cider and, and eat some candy and I'll get to shake some hands and, and talk to people and, and meet people. We've gotta figure out what do we receive, what do we reject, and what do we redeem. And so here's the question. Think about your life right now. And is there something in your life right now that you need to say, I need to reject this or redeem this? 
There's something in my life right now that I need to resist. This is actually taking me to a bad place. Um, I'll tell you one of my rhythms, and I've been sticking with this for the last maybe three months. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm doing my best at it. One of the things that I've started is I do not start my day with my phone. I start my day with the Bible. That's been a, a, one of the things I started to realize. A few months ago, I started to realize I would wake up every morning and I would instantly go to my email and I would instantly be stressed out. Instantly, there's all these things that are telling me what I need to do that, that day. I would instantly go and start checking the numbers on my business and see how things are going on this thing over here. And I would just start my day with kind of chaos and stress and I realized that's not a great way to start your day. And then I'd be grouchy with my kids as I'm driving them to school, and I just would start on the wrong foot. And so I, I kind of had this conviction of, like, my phone's not bad, but I don't think it's the first thing I should open up every morning. I don't think it's the first thing that I should turn to every morning. And so what if the first thing that I turned to was either the Bible or listening to a sermon or just spending time in the presence of Jesus? And so for the last three months or so, I've started my day in that process uh, and I get on my phone later in the day. I check my email, I promise. Uh, I, I do all of those other things. I've just decided that for me, one of the ways that I'm resisting culture is I'm resisting the impulse that's in me, which is a broken impulse, to grab my phone and check how the world is doing every morning when I wake up. And I'm trusting that Jesus is in control of the world, that I don't have to be, and that I can start in his presence, and I can start from a place of peace and not from a place of brokenness. Uh, I, I think our use of media is, is something that we all need to figure out how do we resist. We're all like little kids that play Minecraft seven hours a day. Let's just be honest, right? We all make fun of our children for doing it, but let's just be real. We're all doing the same thing. We're all watching YouTube videos that we shouldn't, right? We're all doing this nonsense where our life is consumed with media and consumed with all of these different things. I remember when my kids were young, my wife actually set this rule of life for me. She was like, every time you walk in the door, you're on the phone. And I've been chasing children all day, and you're on the phone talking for somebody from church. And, and then you're on the phone for like an hour while I'm preparing dinner, and I'm just in chaos. I need you to walk in the door, and I need your phone to be off for two hours. And so my rule was I never walked into the house on the telephone. And I turned off the phone, and for two hours... I was present with my kids, I was present with my wife, and I wasn't perfect at it, Sarah knows. Uh, but I did my very best to actually be present for a few hours because I limited these kinds of things. What are the things in your life that you need to resist in order that you might grow? Um, the, la the second thing is, is, is uh, about risk. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had this quote. He said, those who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know little of the God of tempest, but those who do their business in great waters, they see his wonders in the deep. And I wonder if one of the reasons we're not experiencing the fullness of Jesus is because we're not taking risks. We're just hanging out in the kiddie pool hoping that things will get fun when the fun is really in the deep waters. And we're wondering, why is Jesus not working in my life? Why am I not seeing his power and authority? Why am I not seeing him move? Why am I not seeing him do big things in my life? It's because we're not attempting big things in our life. We're just playing it safe. We're doing the easy things. Does our absolute confidence in God free us to risk everything to obey him? I, I feel like I play it safe in so many different ways. I play it safe with my money. Uh, I've, I've got friends that kept telling me, you gotta get in on this crypto thing. Anybody else have those friends that are always like the crypto? Just me. 
his name is Matt Reynolds. Uh, just always like, crypto, 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 crypto. You got to get in, you got to get in. And apparently, I got in in crypto way too late because it's completely tanked. Don't get in on crypto, anybody. It's not doing well. At least whatever I'm in on, it's bad. All right? This is what I do. I play things safe. I wait until I wait too long. I, I, I play it safe in relationships. I'm always concerned about does everybody like me and is everybody happy and is everybody good instead of challenging. And there's times when I need to challenge and there's times when I need to say hard things and there's times when I need to do hard things rather than play it safe. And I just have this tendency to play it safe. And I, I was reading this week and in Matthew's, Matthew chapter eight and nine, um, there's this really beautiful kind of picture of risk. In Matthew 8 and 9, there's all of these examples of people after person. So it's amazing that Jesus dealt with people one at a time. Like there's this beautiful thing that in the scriptures, you just see there's one person getting touched by Jesus. There's another person getting touched by Jesus. There's a person getting healed over here. There's a person being set free over here. And it's just one at a time, it all begins to pile up. Sometimes we feel like the, the, everything that I'm doing is just so difficult because there's so much need, there's so many challenges when we forget to just meet people one at a time. And so Jesus in Matthew 8 and 9, are just, he's just meeting people one at a time. There's a leper who approaches him. There's a centurion. There's a paralyzed servant. There's a paralytic and his friends. There's the ruler whose daughter was ill. There's the woman who's been hemorrhaging. And then there's the two blind men. All of these people come to Jesus. And if you read through Matthew 8 and 9 and pay attention, in four of the six moments that happen in those relationships, Jesus gives them exactly what's they, what they want and celebrates them because they did what? Because they took a risk. They touched the hem of his garment. They came to him at the possibility of great loss for their family because they were a centurion or they were a ruler. They took a risk to get to Jesus, and when they took a risk, that risk was rewarded. Sometimes I wonder if we're not seeing benefits from our investment, if the reason why is because we're just playing it safe. We just play it safe over and over again, but Jesus clearly invites us to this life of risk, and it's not risk for the sake of risk, because that can be unfaithful, right? We're not just taking risks because, like, we're going to do something crazy this week. I'm going to do something wild. It's going to be wacky. Let's see what happens. No, we're, we're, we're discerning what's God up to and what's the risk he's inviting you to take. What's the financial risk that God's inviting you into? What's the relational risk that God is entrusting you with? What's the risk that he's inviting you to step into with your neighbors or with your friends? What would it look like if all of us just raised our risk tolerance just a little bit, just a tiny little fragment? And I think there are, there are lies in risk-taking because what we're really talking about when we talk about risk is we're talking about faith, right? Risk is faith. It's me living out my faith. It's, it's God responds to a faith that manifests itself in taking risks. And so I trust him and I take risk. And if uh, Thomas Merton has this great quote where he says, if our intention is to please God, chances are we're pleasing him, which I love, right? If I just set my heart on a risk, and maybe it's not the greatest risk, maybe it's not the thing that I'm doing, but I'm doing it because I really wanna please Jesus, chances are I'm pleasing Jesus because I wanna please Jesus. Does that make sense? We don't always have to get it perfect, 
We don't have to define the perfect thing. It doesn't have to be the absolute greatest thing. Hebrews 11, verses one through six talks about faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created in the world of God, so that it, so what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice through, by, than Cain, through which was commended as righteousness, God commending him as accepting his gifts. And through his faith, he died, though he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was found because God had taken him up. Now, before he was commended to having pleased God, and listen to this, verse six, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Man, whenever I read John 15 and it says, apart from him, you can do nothing, I always wish it didn't say nothing. And when I read this, I wish it did not say it's impossible to please him. I wish it said, without risk, it's a little harder to please him. Without risk, it's a little more challenging. This is what it's saying. Without faith, if we are living out our life without faith and trusting that Jesus is a good master and that when we step out of the boat, we can walk on water, if we're not living our faith in such a way that says my finances, my relationship, my job, everything I have is held by a good father who's inviting me to risk, if we do not do that, it is what? It's impossible to please him. That's challenging stuff from Jesus. It's impossible. So what is the faith step that you're willing to take? What's the risk this week that you're willing to walk into? As we're talking about this right now, what's the thing that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart right now that's saying, this is the risk that I want you to take? I want you to talk to that person about your faith and I want you to be specific and tell them the story. I want you to be generous with your finances in this way. I want you to have this conversation with this person in your life who you've been unwilling to forgive and I need you to trust me and forgive them. I need you to do dot, 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 dot. What if every single week the people of God had a rhythm of actually sitting with Jesus and saying, what's the risk you're asking me to take this week and what if we were obedient? There's all kinds of church growth strategies. You, I, could, I could put up here stack after stack after stack. I could cover the altar here with books that are written about church growth strategies. You know what none of them say? Teach your people to eat meals with people in their community and take risks. You know what I think is the key to any church growing? The people of God living like Jesus in their everyday life. And so it's great for us to study the Sermon on the Mount, guys. It's wonderful, and there's so many beautiful things on that. And I don't think there's a time in the history of my lifetime where the Sermon on the Mount has been more needed. But the question for me is not, am I going to study the Sermon on the Mount more? The question is, am I going to be obedient to the Sermon on the Mount? And so today, we're going to create some ministry time and create some space. The prayer team's going to come. The band's going to come back up. We're going to go into worship. There's communion on the tables here. You can take some communion and just spend some time with Jesus quietly on your own. And, and, and as we do, I want you just to sit with Jesus and ask him these two questions. What is it in my life that I need to resist? And what's the pattern or practice or rhythm that I need to create in order to resist it? And what's the risk that you're asking me to take? And listen, this does not have to be some enormous thing, guys, right? Start small. Trust Jesus with the mustard seed and see what happens. 
Trust him with a little thing in your life and see how it grows and see how it sprouts. We're not asking everybody to quit your job today and go do something crazy. We're asking you to say, what's the little thing that you're inviting me to do today and what does it look like for me to follow? Thomas Merton, I was referencing this prayer earlier and he, he has this prayer called Embracing the Unknown. And it says this, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't see the road ahead of me. I can't know for certain where it will end, nor do I know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will may mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope that I have the desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me on the right road, though I may know nothing about it. So therefore, I will trust you always. Though it may seem to be lost in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. This is the kind of faith that we're talking about. A faith that just simply sits in the presence of Jesus and says, all right, Jesus, this is my life, and I hold it out to you with open hands, and I ask you, what in my life do you want me to resist and change, and what does it look like for me to do something different? Here's my resources and here's the things that I own and I recognize that they all don't belong to me. They've already been bought with a price by your son and they belong to Jesus. And so what do I need to give back to you? And where are the areas in my life where I just need to do something in faith? When is the last time you did something in faith? And just said, I don't know where I'm going. One of my mentors says, the journey with Jesus is this journey. It's that I walk to the edge of my faith every single day and I dangle my feet off the edge and real faith begins when I take the next step. And I don't know what's gonna happen and I don't know the results. We are addicted to results in our culture. We're addicted to things that we know we can control the outcomes, but faith is found when we step out of the boat. We don't know if we're gonna sink or if we're gonna walk on water. When we step over the edge and we don't know if we're gonna go bankrupt or we're gonna bring the revival. When we step into the unknown and we trust that Jesus is there, that he's a good master, that he loves me and that he cares for me, and that when I, like all of those people in Matthew 8 and 9, take a risk that he meets me there in that place. It's crazy that Jesus always gives good gifts to the humble and those who are willing to take risks. And he sends the prideful away empty. And so, I don't know, as I've been preparing for this this week, I've just been thinking through my life. And I've just been thinking through, all right, Lord, here's some areas in my life that I need to resist and I just need to give over to you and I need to start rhythms of practice. I need to start rules that I actually tell my family and say, hey, I need to stop doing this. And then there's some areas in my life where I've just been playing it safe and I need to take some risks. And so for you right now, I'm praying by the power of your Holy Spirit that when you just take some time and say, Jesus, where do I need to resist? What do I need to risk? That he'll tell you, that he'll reveal it to you. And if he doesn't, we got a prayer team over here on the side that would love to pray with you. If there's something that's big, you're feeling like I gotta take this big risk and it's really scary, then come and pray. There's something that you know you just need to repent of and confess. We've got a prayer team that is loving and will meet you with the kindness of Jesus in that place. I always say this to people, but when we don't receive on Sundays, there's some power in, I, I said this a few weeks ago, and it was amazing because one of the girls who got baptized last week said, that was the moment when I decided to get baptized. So I'm gonna say it again. There are moments when Jesus wants you to get up out of your seat and actually walk forward 
and then the blessing will come. There's times when he invites us to put one foot into the Jordan River, and when we put our foot into the river, the flow stops. But it doesn't stop until we actually take that step of faith. And so I've gone too long. You guys are looking kind of bored. But this is really, really important to me. And I want to invite you just to take some time, guys, right now. The band's going to play. There's communion. There's prayer. And just take some time and say, Jesus, I want to be formed by you. I want to be shaped by you. So what needs to change? And let's leave something here and take away something from the kingdom of God. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would do all the work that I cannot do. I pray that you would convict hearts. I pray that you would speak clearly. I pray that you would challenge every single one of us to step out in faith. And I pray right now for a spirit of courage and of power and of authority to come over our church in a way that it has not before. I pray that you would teach us to risk, that you would teach us to resist the world, that you would teach us to follow you and to trust you and to take that one step further that we've been unwilling to to take. And I pray that when we take that step, we would land softly in the arms of Jesus. So I thank you, Jesus, for the work that you're going to do. I thank you for the lives that you're going to transform because of the practices that are going to be defined today. We give you this time and ask you to move. In your name we pray.